Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. All right, and we're recording, and lucky enough to have with us uh, Grant Schofield who is a professor of public health and director of the Human Potential Centre at AUT Millennium in Auckland. Uh, His research and teaching interests range from understanding and improving lifestyle behaviours such as sleep, nutrition and physical activity to well-being, epidemiology and human performance. And he's uh, the co-author of the book, What the Fat? Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. And um, a recent, I've, I've, uh, I've been watching your talks for a while and I think they're brilliant, but I recently saw one where you were talking about how collectively in New Zealand, there's millions of years of people's lives, you know, all told every year lost to ill or the qualities lost to ill health. And most of that is due to chronic conditions and not uh, accident or disease. Can you talk about that a bit? Oh, yeah, that's just a, a different way of quantifying loss of quality of life. And so if you think about it in any one year, there's a year, if it's, you took a year, say 2015, in 2015 there was a year available for every person to have a life. Uh, and, well, in our country we had f- 5 million people odd and, and roughly a quarter of the available life years were lost due to poor health, which you know is, is over a million ye- years in a year of humanity just in a small country, and, and the same is true in many other countries. And you go, well, what's the cause of people losing quality of life? Well, people do get injured, and some people were born with congenital issues, and so you can actually analyse that. And the World Health Organization does that about you know what causes that loss of quality of life, and about four percent of those life years lost you know, for poor health were, were due to people being born with congenital issues. About 8% were due to injury and accidents. So, you know, we can do better with that. But the remaining 88% were due to chronic conditions. Uh, and those are diabetes, stroke, cancer, you know, all the vascular diseases, Alzheimer's and dementia, diabetes. And we know the cause of those. So they... As usual, smoking is still there. Harm from alcohol is still there. But the ones that are not well discussed are, or, or invested in at all are nutri- poor, poor diet and, and low fitness. And my point is simply with that is, in, and I'm sure it's true for virtually every developed health system around the world, that even calling them a health system is sort of not even the right name. It's a system that's set up to treat people who are already sick and fix that. And given we know that 
you know, nearly 90% of the burden is from chronic preventable disease. And the trick is to invest well upstream from that and help people and create a world where those behaviors uh, are relatively easy to do, not very hard. And diet is just an astonishing example of that, where we've let the food industry uh, run away with things like the dietary guidelines and that sort of thing. So they control those. The food labeling system and that sort of thing is ridiculous. The, the food supply system is ridiculous. Uh, the monopoly or the, the often duopoly of large chain supermarkets is perverse. Uh, and we don't invest in any of that, but yet we're happy to fix you up if you need kidney dialysis from your renal failure or, uh, you know, who knows what sort of cancer drug, at who knows what sort of cost, um, many of which neither prolong quality or quantity of life. And we'll, we'll spend billions on those things. And yet you go, oh, can we do something about food? Oh, no, no money for that. And so that's really my point is that there's just a huge between where the problem lies and the investment in the problem. That, that's where I've been trying to go with that. And, and the quality of life years in one year just illustrates how many, the sheer scale of lost good life. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite sad really. And I was talking to someone earlier about the, the kind of um, calculation that you can do when you're talking about uh, animal welfare and uh, you know eating meat and so on um, and uh, how if you're really going to try to come up with a balance sheet on suffering then you really have to include the human beings who end up on that uh, in that vast majority of people whose quality of life is in the toilet absolutely agree with that 100 percent how do you think you're? How do you think you or we are getting on uh, with fighting that in New Zealand, maybe, and broad, more broadly? Oh, uh, hopelessly, and uh, I think there's problems at so many levels. But I'll give you a couple of examples of where problems lie. It's even getting evidence into things like scientific journals, which is really my primary job. I'm a researcher and an academic, and we do studies. When you look at some of the perversities of that, and I'll give you a couple in our field, is the pharmaceutical and to an extent food industry money that goes into things like editorial boards on journals. The, the Journal of the American Cardiology Society, the, there's upwards of half a million dollars goes to each board member for being on the board. Uh, you know, drug company money, food industry money. Uh, diabetes care, a similar journal, it's a couple of hundred thousand US per thing. And then this is nothing commensurate with the sort of work that goes on. I think most people in most societies are used to being ripped off by lawyers and uh, to an extent real estate agents. You know, neither of those jobs seem to reflect the actual work that they do. Um, but this, the, this bias in publishing trials and data um, which suits an agenda is utterly out of control so that's one thing uh, we have a governments on short-term contracts basically 
where they're elected to deliver on on problems, uh, not necessary solutions. So they want to say that they're going to fix, you know, the hospital surgical waiting list or or the 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 problems in the emergency departments and, and waiting times at hospitals. Um, so they're really not incentivized to see the long game. We still have a training system for our doctors and virtually all health professionals where there is nothing about lifestyle. And I mean, that's just bizarre. You know, imagine when you know that all the problems are caused by this and so you do no training in this, you only do training in that. And so yeah, there's just, I see about 10 big problems, um, all of which are going to need to be solved and all of which are hard and we haven't made much progress. I think the one glimmer of hope is what you're doing and where we're all actually going at the moment is that there's this upsurge in people, people who aren't trained in necessary medicine, who actually are in a much better position to do the reading and understand the literature, and they're in a position to self-experiment, and they're in a position to form communities and agitate for change. And I still think that is probably where I hold the biggest hope. And I think that's why uh, writing books, podcasting, blogging, uh, banding together communities with uh, modern social media has, has a big role to play. And I think that's probably the major hope for, for health, frankly. If you're going to wait for the dietary guidelines to be changed by the government and that would solve it, I think we're going to be waiting for another 50 years. And, and most of us don't want to wait that long at all. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I suppose all those problems you spoke about, there's some heavy, dark forces at play sometimes, a lot of money involved. And yeah. it's, um, I guess, a case of doing what you can. and um going for the the low hanging fruit and just almost trying to bypass those uh forces of authority seems to be the the one thing that everybody can do at the moment by self experimenting and communicating well it's interesting in the uk is a really good example where you've got that diabetes.co.uk who have really supported a more whole food uh, lower carbohydrate approach for diabetes, which is, you know, first of all, on first principles, an absolute no-brainer. And then on trials, like the VERTA trials, is a much superior way of treating diabetes. Um, and they've been highly successful, actually, in getting their message across. But you've still got the British Dietitians Association, you know, stuck in the 1950s. Actually, no, if they were stuck in the 50s, that would have been good because we got it then. They're stuck in the 1980s, uh, which is, is arguably much worse than being stuck in the 50s. They, so, yeah, it's, so you're seeing, actually, the UK has been a really interesting space for that because of, because of that particular example I just talked about. Yeah, and I had um, Dr. Jen Unwin, whose husband David Unwin's done uh, the infographics that have been accepted by the National Institute for Clinical Excellence on describing how food, nor sort of normal everyday foods, um, impact your blood sugar if you're, especially if you're, you're diabetic or pre-diabetic. So there's yeah. things that um, there's um, 
a bit of sanity in um, larger institutions and that, you know, if the evidence is that strong like it is, and you mentioned the Verta trial where uh, Verta being a company that's formed um, by a group of doctors and uh, uh, an angel investor who wanted to see, wanted to formalize into a proper trial um, whether low carbohydrate diet with support uh, online and offline um, would uh, result in better uh, health and for people with diabetes. And of course, in I think it's over 90% of the participants, they have um, significantly reduced or come off drugs completely. Yeah. And and I guess in technical complete reversible is about fifty percent of people participating. And I encourage people to go to vita dot com and and look at the trial results. The two year trial results are uh, only recently out. They're astonishing. Mm-hmm. I think what's astonishing is that the control, which is is current best practice, people were treated as they are with diabetes palliatively, and they got worse. Their insulin requirements went up. Their medication requirements went up. They got fatter their control got worse over that two-year period. Whereas we've seen, you know, more than half the people in that intervention group uh, completely reversed their diabetes, a term that was not even used up until recently. On the other side, um, following that, just uh, this week, uh, there was an editorial published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, one of the highest profile things going we need to be careful about this sort of uh, real food, low carb approach, and it needs to be, it's a fad, treat it with caution, and just nonsense, emotive nonsense. So, you know, dark forces remain, I guess. Yeah. And I like, it's like I like a Harry Potter novel or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't think that particular journal would have got into um, Gryffindor. Um, uh, uh, I think besides challenging conventional nutritional beliefs and sort of being at the spearhead of that side of things, I really like the other areas of research you're doing and taking a kind of holistic approach because um, my girlfriend's an architect and she talks a lot about what, you know, whether the architecture of a of an of an area can affect people's health in a positive way she's always thinking about that and you've looked at uh, so-called healthy cities and um you know how particularly urban form affects human health and physical activity maybe you can talk about that a bit oh yeah well thanks for asking about that i'm really into that and and it seems to get a bit lost with the nutrition a lot of nutrition stuff going on but it's we've been doing this for uh, more than a decade now, which is using geographic information systems to quantify what cities look like, uh, sort of with population. The, the, the positive aspects seem to be the more people you have, the more connected the streets are, and the more mixed the land uses that you have businesses and places to live and places to eat and places to go, places to play in the same area, then the more people accumulate activity just by moving around um and i th- i think that's the way to go like while exercise and 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 dedicate exercise is very very good for you it's very hard to get populations to do that and sustain that and so the easy way is just to build places where it's easier to walk so they do and in, in our most walkable cities which are mainly the cities that were came to be before cars were invented 
then they have that form. Hmm. And the astonishing part about that is that as soon as we started to actually get professional planners into design cities around the time cars came out, completely screwed it up for decades and built cars, not for people. Hmm. And you look at those types of, especially North American city designs, then, uh, then people are much less healthy and the major contributing factor is the amount of time they spend sitting in, in vehicles hmm. rather than just accumulating movement across the day. And, and so it's a really powerful potential way to generate all sorts of things. Because also it's very hard to interact with your community in a car. It's very hard to have those accidental meetings. It's very hard to have someone pat the dog and talk to you. Whereas those things all come naturally. Uh, the social connection and the neighbourhood cohesiveness and all that sort of stuff in that type of environment. And, and I'm always... Uh, yeah, so that's that's been an interesting one. Um, and we still continue to do quite a lot of work in that uh, space. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I've got, you know, a history of kind of physical and mental health problems that more or less resolved completely when I changed the way I ate. But I also yeah. think there's... Um, you know, one person's complete solution is not another's. And I'm really fascinated in thinking about how much you can apportion um, positive mental health to food and, you know, drink and drugs um, and psychology and, you know, past trauma, for example, it's all influence. And I wonder if you've kind of got a rough kind of thought process on the main influences there. Well, I, I, I think if we're talking specifically about about brain health and feeling good, uh, at the positive end, you call it well-being. At the negative end, you call it a mental health issue. I still think there's the emerging evidence is that if you wanted to look at the biology of that, there's, there's, there's inflammatory processes going on. Um, can you get a way of treating yourself that's profoundly anti-inflammatory? Oh, I think... I think the first off of the five things you would pick, the first off is nutrition. Because when you eat a lot of sugar, a lot of glucose, a lot of refined and processed food, then you're putting yourself in a constant anabolic state. And the biology of that is simply that that's being anabolic's not bad, but being constantly anabolic means that you're, you're, infl- you're inflamed uh, and you never get a chance to not be that. And this is one of the reasons I think you know, going on a keto diet for some period of time resolves quite serious mental health problems like psychoses and other um, more serious depressions. And hang on, let's, let's turn that off. Uh, and, you know, that's the obvious thing about food. But if you want to look for other profoundly anti-inflammatory behaviours, um, the first one is getting a good night's, the second one is getting a good night's sleep. And, and so that's just, huge uh we we see that you could basically you know, uh you could basically end up accumulating inflammation across the day being awake sorry i just need to turn that off uh you could accumulate inflammation across the day and then good night's sleep is profoundly anti-inflammatory you you end up moving products out of the brain and reducing inflammation. Third is uh, exercising, but particularly at low intensity. Um, if you've got your diet right and you're able to move around at a low intensity, then then you 
Oh, hang on, just let me get rid of this. That's great. Yeah. I haven't really gotten a message that I'm hanging up on them. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I was trying to answer my phone at all, so I'm surprised anyone's called me. <laughs> they, they, um, so, so yeah, uh, if we're talk about sleep again, so sleep's profoundly inflammatory. You hear about the lymphatic system where we move waste around the body, and the brain is the glymphatic system which moves waste products out of the brain and it does it when we're sleeping. Um, so sleep's crucial. Uh, social connection seems to be profoundly anti-inflammatory for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, and having some meaning and purpose in your life seems to have the same effect as well. And I'm not exactly sure why. So um, those will be the sort of five things that I think are related to mental health. And I think they're, they're around creating an anti-inflammatory environment. And so those are the things that I would bring together if I'm talking about those things. And, and, and medications have very little to do with any of those. Hmm. Um, and, and in fact, and in fact, in fact, you know, I just think it's a terrible idea with mental health to be interfering with one little part of, of brain homeostasis within the complexity, most of which we don't understand. I, I just can't see the ending well. On, on principles, and I think that's worn out by the literature. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, those the five things you were talking about, is that what um, informs the, the work you've done on the, the Sovereign Wellbeing Index, where you, you, know, you look at the, the survey on what um, helps New Zealanders flourish? Oh, yeah, well, that was, I just did, wanted to do some, not that I'm one for big surveys, particularly as telling us the answer to everything, and that's been part of the problem, especially in nutrition research. But I just wanted to have some way of raising a, a nationwide discussion about what keeps people well rather than what makes them sick. So I, I ended up getting a, a couple of runs at a large national survey of 10,000 odd New Zealanders just to find out the sort of things that predicted well-being, not, mm. not sickness. And you know, those are the things. Uh, um, but what, you know, one of the things that I found most variable and most interesting of that is the... Um, how much people talk to their neighbours, how protective that was, but the massive variation in that, you know, in some poorly defined parts of uh, New Zealand, which Auckland was one, uh, fewer than 10% of people said they even knew or talked to their neighbours ever. And you went to some of these more regional, uh, smaller towns, which is a wonderful part of New Zealand. And, you know, virtually everyone knows their neighbours and, and has a, a meaningful contact with their community. So mm. there's a, uh, that, that was one of the major things that varied the most and one of the things that predicted health the most is just knowing your neighbor wow that's fascinating and yeah. it's the same yeah. it's the same over here of course uh, you know i i can probably count on one hand the number of times i've spoken to uh people in you know that are direct my direct neighbors for more than a yeah. minute or two um yeah which is just sort of i suppose when we're busy in the city and we have friends elsewhere, we compartmentalize and um, ignore it. But, it, you know, I think if we do that too much, then even if we've got a social life, we can be lonely a lot of the time. Yeah. And also the thing is about your neighbors, they're quite often people that are quite different from you and think differently. And, and that's, that's an important part. It's, it's very easy to get trapped, trapped in your own little think bubble of, of, you know, everyone thinks the same way as me and why is the world not changing? Well, you know, guess what? They don't. And dealing with that is, is, is interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I like that a lot. And yeah. it's not something, it's something that 
as social media improves and um, the connectivity in that respect improves, it's easier and easier to stay in your bubble and only come out to fight the enemy, so-called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that has, that's interesting and useful in some things, but it's not, if that's the only way you see the world, it's probably not going to end well. Yeah, I like your focus on, on positivity more. Um, have you had much uh, opposition in New Zealand for, you know, your, um, your, the direction that your research goes in? Well, it depends what you study. So when you study things like exercise and activity and urban form, um, you know, despite the evidence base not being nearly as strong as nutrition, everyone thinks that's wonderful. <laughs> you do well-being, everyone thinks that's wonderful. Uh, you do nutrition and then you're straight into the lion's den and it's, it's just on for young and old and it's, it's this vicious backstabbing um, and full frontal fighting and it's just astonishing to me because I didn't start in nutrition I started in those other areas mm. and I just thought well you know look this evidence is quite strong the evidence that they're purporting for you know things like uh, fat and animal fats and it's weak on existent. Uh, I'd expect a reasonable scientific discussion about, and that's what happens in the other fields. Uh, but in nutrition, man, no, forget it. So um, I think we've had quite a few prominent researchers. You know, Professor Jim Mann from Otago has been one of those, who, in my opinion, are stuck in a sort of time warp of dissonance where, and I think that's been a really vicious fight. I, I'm not happy about the way that's turned out. Like we've, these are, are nice enough people, but when it gets down to the science, the discussion is not no reasonable discussion, and it plays out in the media quite badly. Um, we've probably had a role in that as well. But yeah, ugly. Uh, I've, I've found it really difficult to get nutrition-related research grants uh, since we started talking about this a decade ago. Uh, the other fields still. Yeah, it's just the same the difference. That's interesting. So, you know, if if you're looking for around the same amount of money, uh, maybe you're not. But if you are, that you know, um, in the equivalent fields, and you're getting it, then yep. what's stopping it coming in in nutrition? I mean, where does it come from? And you know, where, what's different about the funding mechanism? Oh, it's just the you know, it's just the conflicts of interest of people who are assessing these things, and also like there's just. A, to me, there's just a fundamental misunderstanding. The, the, there's two major problems in nutrition research uh, that are basic bits of science. The first of all is this idea that saturated fat, this composition of a saturated fatty acid, somehow has this effect on the body, even though there's no real evidence for that. Uh, and the second is, okay, people seem to understand sugar as in sucrose, added sugars, and you know, table sugar, the sort of sugar that's in soda, and those sorts of things. They get that. They're increasingly getting that. But then you talk about everything else that puts sugar in your blood. They just, especially for diabetes, this just seems to be an utter blank. If we could make that, if everyone was happy to make that acknowledgement that eating, say, white bread or white rice, uh, if you're a diabetic, is a bad idea because it, it puts your blood sugar up. And even the glycemic index, you know, that's great. It'll reduce your blood sugar and blood insulin if you're insulin sensitive. But if you're insulin resistant, it still provokes hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia, and because it goes in slow, it just does it longer. Uh, and those sort of simple facts, which are well-known pieces of biology, seem to utterly escape 
most of the nutrition researchers and public health people. Um, and, and they seem so obvious to me. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a paper published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition this week, which shows a graph of the effects of a, a, a low carbohydrate, healthy fat breakfast on glycemia and insulin anemia for a diabetic. So it completely reduces the normal glycemia and insulin anemia. And then they carry on to give them normal high carb lunches and dinners. And they go, see, that just shows you that having breakfast this way is enough. Hmm. And you're like, oh my Lord, you know, these people are still running average blood glucose of eight millimoles or something. It's just astonishing. They seem to be able to publish that stuff and not understand the, you know, what would happen if you just did that for every meal? Hmm. You know? uh, <laughs> and there's trials on that, you know, it's so bizarre. Anyway, I'm digressing. No, it's good. And I think um, this is the thing that gets lost in uh, translation for the average person who more or less just wants to defer to whatever expert seems to know what they're talking about. Um, Nutrition is about the worst in terms of uh, effectively doing that as a collective. And because um, you just usually get the the notion that either keto will um you know uh, kill you or it'll uh turn you into a god and there's not much and neither of those are true right because it's an appropriate intervention for some types of issues and it's an appropriate go to have as an experiment should people be on a keto diet for their the whole time lord no i mean then you'd be avoiding all the benefits of occasional anabolic signaling why would you want to do that and so you know but if you're a diabetic and you highly insulin resistant and your pancreas is more or less stuff well yeah probably so yeah and yeah, yeah that's, that's right and then then there's the sort of whole I, I guess the other point that you're making is that well everyone eats so everyone's got an opinion on eating uh, whereas not everyone exercises so they don't have an opinion on it um, so much and you know not everyone's involved in climate change, although it probably affects us all, so not everyone's got an opinion, but eating, you know, it's something we do very regularly. We've all got an opinion and we're willing to voice it. And there's probably also uh, one thing we haven't got into it is the, the religious layer that has guided nutrition for, for good and bad over the centuries. You know, there's been a lot of fasting that have most religions embrace, which has had, you know, has net positive effects on well-being. Uh, and you know, may well be the physiology of uh, of getting close to to, to closer to, to understanding how your brain works, and I don't know if that, what that all means. Um, and on the other end, you've got the sort of Seventh Day Adventist movement that that started, you know, purely plant based eating to reduce your your vigor, to make you much less like feel like having sex, and men acting in an animal way and not consuming animal flesh would do that and that's a a really fascinating uh area where you you, i can't remember the name of the woman but she was a seventh-day adventist and she was the kind of uh mentor of j harvey kellogg who yes that's right and uh he he is of kellogg's fame and the whole idea was to give people kind of cereal mulch so that they yeah. would stop 
so that they would stop being horny. And that's, yeah. the, that's the long and short of it. And um, <laughs> it, 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 it kind of, you can't really believe it when you first hear it, but um, yeah. it's the truth. And it kind of persists to this day, bizarrely. Sometimes nobody wants to believe that we're still in the dark ages in any field, but I think in most fields we are. And I think it, it's a good place to start knowing that we're actually um, just at the foothills. Yeah, exactly. And, and you make a good point about this. You hear about it and you go, well, that can't be true. The beauty of the internet is you can go and look up and read both Alan White's and um, Kellogg's original writings. Uh, and you can read his books. And by any modern sort of standard, here's a physician claiming that masturbation is the cause of all manner of ills. And the way you sort them is just to stop that. And the way you stop that is giving them bland food that doesn't contain animal products. And it's just, it's, I mean, most modern people find that astonishing and, and don't believe it. Uh, in fact, my wife keeps saying to me, oh, well, that's just your interpretation of history. Hmm. And I'm going, no, no, it's written down. You're just going to look at it. And so, <laughs> so, yeah, anyway. Yeah, and I guess the... The, the, probably the converse is, is true that if you if you lower your consumption of grains and increase your uh, consumption of animal products, then you're likely to increase your libido and increase your um, vitality in other ways. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, I, mean, the, I guess the modern battlefield for plant based has really turned into a sort of climate change yes. save the planet issue. And I think most people want to have a good, healthy planet. I can't imagine anyone who's aiming not to have that. Um, but the distortion in data, I think if you look at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's, you know, what produces greenhouse gas, well, 12% of greenhouse gases in the U.S. are produced by agriculture. And more than half of that is from, from, from plant-based farming. And could they improve of that 6% that animal farming is contributing? Well, I don't think anyone in North America agrees on the way that they farm animals there is is um, humane um, or couldn't improve. But, you know, the, the and, and, and so that's one thing is grossly overstating the, the problem that animal farming contributes. Uh, and the second thing is, it's just ignoring the major problem. The major problem is there's too many humans on the planet. And, you know, it's as simple as that. But I'm not suggesting we go and kill half of them. I'm just trying to say that's the problem. That, that's where the problem starts. Uh, that we've, our populations are utterly out of control. I don't know what the solution is to that, but that is the problem. Yeah, you're not the first person to be on here who's suggested that. And yeah. I think humans are obviously in their self-interest. They've got a biological imperative to uh, find food sources and uh, make the next generation larger than the last. And yeah, so, right. that's, so that's what we do. Yeah. And that, might not, that may not end well. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's a, it, and it, but I don't think it has to be a toss up. I think there's a false dichotomy right now about planet health and human health. Um, yeah. And I think the problem is that there's still a lot of noise around the idea that uh, plant-based diets are more healthy. And I think anyone who's seriously looked at it would have to concede that you, to be optimally healthy, you have to include some animal foods in your diet. I don't think that's controversial. Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I mean, to me, on, on first principles, humans are, humans are omnivorous. They eat plants and animals. 
and those were largely unprocessed foods as they occur to nature. Um, that's how we evolved. Um, that would be the starting template. And it's also, that's the other thing that's bizarre in nutrition research while we're on it, is that in any other, any other field of biology, especially human biology, taking an evolutionary biology perspective is just, it's just where you start. That's just the given. That's absolutely normal. You do it on nutrition and you're some sort of freak. Hmm. I just found that, how weird is that? How's that even possible to go, look, well, humans have this genome, they're involved in this environment, we're going to use that as a template to start us, help us to understand um, human structure and function. Mm-hmm. And then you, you apply that in nutrition and you're a nutcase. Well, so, I, I really? think, I mean, it'd be interesting to know what you think, but I think there's two main factors there. Um, because the two things that typically get brought up by, say, paleo people around uh, evolutionary arguments of nutrition would be, yeah. we shouldn't be eating, we've got no place eating um, mass-produced grains, and we've got no place yeah. or a, a more limited place eating uh, eating dairy, even though clearly yeah. some people tolerate it fine and it's full yeah. of nutrients. Yeah. So yeah. I think the problem that people have with that is that they look around and they think, well, everyone eats that all over the place and they have done for thousands of years, not really thinking that actually our evolution is more like millions of years and it's really just the yeah. last sort of half percent or one percent of the time that we've done that um, and misconstruing kind of how long it takes to evolve to uh, tolerate these kinds of things and thrive off them. And then the second thing being that we're hopelessly addicted to it and we just don't want it to be true that we shouldn't eat it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that's a really good, both of those are really good points, and I definitely agree with that. First, it's you know if you look at human history, that the the wheat and, and agricultural revolution of ten thousand years ago wasn't was was only a positive effect on humanity on one small thing, which makes a massive difference. That you can wean children off the breast quicker to soft palatable foods. And despite the fact that humans' brain size shrunk, they shrunk in stature and their lifespan decreased, we were able to, to reproduce at a higher rate. And even taking into account increased infant mortality, our population was able to go exponential. That, that's the net effect, if you want to think of it as a positive one. Everything else is a negative effect on humanity. So, and, and there's some great reading about that. I particularly commend there's a book called Against the Grain, uh, which you can get off Amazon. And there's some, you know, that 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 agricultural history is really interesting mm. and worth reading for, for anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the um, Noah Yuval Harari touches on it a little bit in yeah. Um, yeah. In, in Sapiens and yeah, yeah, that's another it's, book. It's yeah. a little, it's a little bit of a mystery, really. You know, uh, yeah. why we would. Um, turn away from uh, a hunter-gatherer life where maybe we just follow a big herd of ruminants around and pick off the, the weak and the young when we need to feed. And um, that's it. Uh, and, and trade that for uh, um, a life of uh, concern over harvests and famine um, and lower quality food. Yeah, it's, it's really an interesting point in human history that we'll never fully understand because we, we can never be there. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know what the conversations were like around the campfire. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it, I, I suppose like it's just so far removed from how we live now 
and that's kind of what your research is all about and it's make it's not like you're calling for rewilding uh, you're you're just trying to make sense of how we uh, could practically do things in our current environment that would you know at least alleviate the, most of the problems and i know that you've done another couple of things around physical kind of well-being um including around play and uh the benefits of of risk in how children's play how, how children play oh yeah so that's been really interesting and in fact that's probably gained more attention over the years than anything else and I, like my research career much of it just sort of followed the 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 growth of my three ch children i've got three boys one's 18 16 and a nine-year-old and I, it was just my observations of the world as they went through you yeah, particularly the the risk adversity and this uh, it's an astonishing thing that's crept into modern society, the idea of a play date. Where you, you somehow organise someone to come around to your house and they specially sit there supervised by adults. Um, and then the notion that that was displacing the idea of how, at least I recall growing up, which was in a small town where you were experiencing a risk and event venture on your own terms with your friends just being out and about the place uh the the the, the neighborhood was the the safety net and so we tried to introduce we, we did quite a lot of research measuring that sort of ecological stuff the way david atterborough might explain it in a in you know a show about sort of how, you know how far the young animal would would be allowed to you know, move from its home without parental supervision and you, if you started mapping that across generations um, which we've done it's astonishing um, how little modern children are allowed to to go and experience risk intervention on their own terms uh, we've done quite a lot of work on getting to and from school you know it turns out if you ask children how they'd prefer to get to school they'd much rather walk or bike uh, the reality is that most of them get taken in a car the reality is that um, those extra cars create perversity all over the place they make it more dangerous for the cyclists and the walkers they in themselves have accidents and those accidents are more serious uh, they create congestion in schools and I don't know what Scotland's like but in New Zealand primary schools like there's a sort of lineup of of SUVs that have to be managed through some sort of special traffic management system to pick up children every day Zah. Um, where most of them should just be walking there. And there's also work we've done in schools. We uh, Probably our most famous study in that regard is we ended up, we, we got a large grant, like more than a million dollars to do this stuff to get kids more active in playgrounds. And, and I don't know why, but originally our idea was we were going to build these, these, these playground structures. And then it became obvious to us that, first of all, the, the cost of building a playground was about the same as building a small house. Um, the health and safety around it was so ridiculous it was almost impossible. Hmm. Uh, but most of all, when you ask the kids about it, they were just like, nah, don't really want that. And so our research partners wanted to hand the money back. I was just like, there's no way we're handing a million bucks back. And so I tried to reorchestrate it. And I went and met with a few schools. And I was like, look, I'm an ex-child. You're ex-kids. <laughs> Wouldn't it be just bloody great fun if we just abandoned all school rules and just did whatever we wanted in the playground? And you could bring scooters and bikes and you could set up jumps and, eh, you know, and it's just going on and on. And, and these were sort of high decile richer schools and they were just looking at me in complete 
it, yeah, incredulously, just going, uh, yes, Professor Scott, we'll get back to you. And they never did. <laughs> and so then I tried to go, so I thought, oh, well, look, so there's got to be a way somewhere. I went to the to a, to a couple of much lower socioeconomic schools. And, and one of them, this uh, school, Royal Road in Auckland, they... <laughs> They actually, the school's not a bad school, but it's it's right next to a big freeway. And the the principal of that school actually was a kid at that school. And back in his day, his major memory of school is that there used to be this big culvert underneath the, the, the freeway. And he would sneak under there at lunchtime and steal apples from the orchard that used to be there on the other side. And that's his major positive thing about school. So he was totally up for it. And I got another school as well. And we eventually recruited... 10 schools into this trial where we just abandoned school rules in the playground. So there was full contact allowed. Uh, there's a New Zealand game, but it's probably the same game in most countries, but in New Zealand it's called Bull Rush. Basically one, one kid stands in the middle and everyone else, they, they call out one person, they go, Ellie, and you run at them and try and get round them. And if you successfully get round them, it's a bull rush and everyone just runs. And um, if you get them down, then you're both in the middle. And you can see how this goes. In the yeah. end, there's like 50 guys in the middle and one guy running. Yeah. And <laughs> oh, they got banned years ago. Uh, but actually, um, uh, they reintroduced that. And kids have all sorts of complexity around their roles. It's like, well, you know, Grant can tackle Ali, but Ali's a bit of a machine, so he's only allowed to tackle Grant with two hands and above the waist and you know and it all ends up pretty good actually so we did that we we would cut down a couple of prey structures because they were dangerous so we were going to move them to the dump but we ended up just leaving them there and kids move those pieces around and you know a whole bunch of of uh, you know, tree climbing was allowed again uh, fence climbing you know whatever and it was astonishingly successful you know, the classroom improving learning improved and you know a whole bunch of things um, what was more interesting to me than the research itself is the publicity around that. When it started to get covered on national TV, then the video clip got viewed something like 7 million times. It was the most watched piece of news on TV New Zealand ever. Wow. And uh, actually, most of those weren't actually from New Zealand. And a lot of parents think that way. A lot of parents were pushing like on their social media um, yet there's a disconnect between those parents liking that and reminiscing about their childhood and, then, and them letting their own kids go out and, and run free. And, and you'd well, think it, you'd think parents would be into it, right? Like it just makes parents so much easier. You just, you just open up the door, send the kids outside and, and they'll come back a couple of hours later. It's, it's easier parenting. Um, that makes sense. And I suppose like what's, what's confusing to me is, you know, parents were parenting uh, the last generation and so on ad infinitum. But, um, you know, ever since we crawled out of a swamp hundreds of millions of years ago, um, they had parents too. And uh, I suppose, like, what's changed in the last 40 years or however long it is, that's, is it something to do with social signaling? They don't want to be seen to be bad parents? Or are they hearing scare stories? Or what's the main influence here? I, I believe, I don't have much evidence for this, I believe it's a two-parent two working environment um, creates sort of a guilty feeling to parents, particularly mothers, and they end up sort of trying to make up for that by over-parenting when they're available, and it's no good for anyone. So, 
I'm not suggesting all mums should stay at home or all dads, but I think that environment now where the kids are in a lot of care and then when you are available, you feel like you should be doing something active with them, you know, driving them to hip hop or God knows what. And so just sending them off to do whatever they want seems to be entirely socially inappropriate because of your absence on the other times. That's my primary view. I have no evidence that that's true. But mm. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of sad if it is. I guess um, yeah. it's just part of the way the economy is now that, uh, you know, we have to work two jobs to get the things we want. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I was looking at that you've done is um, talking about uh, standing up at work and um, having uh, like standing office furniture so that you're not sitting oh, down. Should, yeah, I'm actually at that now. I should stand up. There, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting down too. I don't know what I'm doing to myself. Um, yeah. I mean, sitting is one of the great pleasures in life. So, you know, what? come on, what have you got against sitting? Well, I haven't actually, just to show you. I mean, if you can see here, I've got two massive leather couches and I'm going to have a recline and, <laughs> okay. and rest. I'm all for resting. Um, it's just, well, I'm not actually as keen on the standing desk because I once were. So I really got into it going, look, we're sedentary the whole day. Mm -hmm. we, we sit down. Um, surely if we could design office furniture that was, if you're going to be in an office, you might as well be standing up for part of it. And so um, we designed and invented our own furniture and we've got this sort of modular stuff. It's really cool and, and it's nice. And and my desk is at standing height, but I've got a higher stool. Um, the stool's not very comfortable. Uh, it's just when I started researching this, it didn't play out as well as you'd think, right? So having changing that sitting environment makes a little bit of a difference to how much people move, but there's a much bigger difference between people. Hmm. So lean people compared to the most obese people in a office environment might stand up an extra 50 times a day. They might move an extra three to five kilometers in their office. Hmm. Um, but all the environmental stuff's equal when you go, what's going on with that? And I think, you know, that was partially what led me into the insulin, insulin resistance, leptin, type signaling pathway that's all part of the physiology of, of lower carb diets and, and aerobic exercise is, is I think that's part of the, the signaling problem. You can try and change people's mind about sitting less, particularly with office standing office furniture, and that might be helpful, particularly if you've got lower back, specific lower back problems and that sort of thing. I still think the fundamental problem for, for motionlessness is, is insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia that sort of inflammatory signaling that goes with that and that interferes with leptin signaling and vagal nerve stimulation. And you've got this sort of internal environment that supports just becoming motionless and sitting around. So, you know, I've done a bit on standing desks and we've still got them and we use them, but I think that there's bigger factors in play than just that. Mm. You know, obviously sitting at your office and working the whole day is just a dumb idea. Um, it's, it's a pretty bad place to think, but... Um, I quite like resting. Like I'd rather be tired and rest. And that's why I've got these big couches where I have a lie down and a bit of a sleep and it's all, people seem to think that's weird, but you know, I don't know, whatever. That makes sense. I think that's, that's a big thing in Japan I've heard is that yeah. uh, bigger companies are starting to adopt um, nap times. So maybe they'll do some exercise and then have a nap. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so good, but it's so socially unacceptable, at least in this country. Like everyone just like, what the hell are you doing? You, there is, you know, I'm just laughing going, well, I'm trying to be productive and, and you know, no one seems to understand that. And they just think it's, it's, yeah, 
stupidity. I mean, the, the good part about being a professor is at least you can be eccentric and it's okay. Like it's 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 sort of you know it's even a good thing. Whereas <laughs> some of us can barely get away with it. With most people, and most yeah, if you're a warehouse foreman, you might not you might not it might not go across so well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's been it's been really fascinating talking to you. I really appreciate your time. Um, maybe you can tell everyone where they can find you online. Um, yeah, yeah. So doing a few things. Uh, I guess the I've got a blog, profgrant.com, which I sort of write scientific stuff from time to time, as amongst other things. So I've just got a couple of things today to put out. Uh, I have been involved in this social enterprise called Precure, Precure.com. And one thing we've just been going for a year or so on that, trying to make lifestyle medicine easy to prescribe. So, you know, offering free programs and that sort of thing, um, but also trying to train up a workforce that I would call health coaches uh, and do continuing medical education for, for all other health professionals, especially around diet, because, you know, you know to me, that's the missing aspect and to make that as cheap as we possibly can. Uh, the books uh, at What the Fat Book. Dot com and there's a UK version just out on that. So I think that's in most uh, bookstores. I've got Asim Mahotra to write the foreword. So that's been, you know, he's a real hero of mine. So that's been cool. You know, his, his, the work he does is astonishing. Uh, yeah, that's about it. So, uh, you know, the Facebook and all the normal stuff's there as well. So look it up. Fantastic. Right. Thanks yeah. again and uh, take care. Yeah. Thanks, Ellie. That's awesome. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and see you next time.